My guest today is Colin McGee, who is trained in psychoanalytic and humanistic therapy and hypnotherapy. He works at the national ADHD charity ADIS as a psychotherapist, supervisor and trainer, as well as running his own personal clinical practice, specialising in behaviour management, ADHD and most recently autism. He started working with a variety of singers in the early 1990s and has also worked with some classical musicians. And if you happen to have Janice Chapman's book, Singing and Teaching Singing, on your bookshelves, you will find his name gets a cheeky mention in the acknowledgements. It's my pleasure to welcome Colin McGee to the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. We are together today to talk about ADHD and how the voice teacher can best assist a singer with neurodiversity. So first of all, can you help us understand what ADHD actually is? ADHD is um, it's a neurological condition which is very, very challenging. It's in about 5% of the population, depends on which... Uh, which person's reporting it but it, in england it's usually thought about five percent and about one percent of those people are, di- are diagnosed it's not overdiagnosed, which is often said it's actually underdiagnosed, which is that's quite important um and it, it it affects um a major part of their life and it's not it's not um a very shallow oh they're always late kind of thing it's it's uh it's something that is part of them and it's an amazingly big challenge for them um so it's you know i i googled it earlier on just to see what people say because every specialist or expert has a slightly different explanation and they don't really know exactly what it is so it's uh, adult attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a mental health disorder that includes a combination of persistent problems such as difficulty paying attention, hyperactivity, and impulsive behavior. Adult ADHD can lead to unstable relationships, poor work or school performance, low self-esteem, and many other problems. So that's a slight uh, flavor. It's a disability, and it's protected by the Disability Discrimination Act, um, you know, which is a really important thing because you don't get that kind of diagnosis just because you're a bit late or you're a bit forgetful. It's, it is a real serious condition. How is it diagnosed and is a diagnosis important? Um, well, th- this is something I hear a lot. You know, why do you need a diagnosis? Well, you know, and the reality is that with if you have a condition, you know, if, if you're feeling unwell, you go to the doctor, you want to find out what it is. If your car's broken, and you go to the garage, you don't turn up and say, is my car's broken? You know, fix it. You say, what's wrong with it? Which is the diagnosis. And then you work out how to process and the best way of dealing with it. If you know the diagnosis, it gives you a shorthand for how best to support that. So if you tell me that someone is ADHD, I've got a, an array of possibilities that I can bring to help support that person. If you say they're autistic, it's a slightly different array. There's a lot of overlap, but it's a slightly different array of strategies that will work. But also you can learn things that don't work because certain behaviors will trigger negative behavior. So it, you know, the, the diagnosis is really important and it also protects you. Uh, you know, I, I do a lot of work in schools. So if a child 
isn't diagnosed and is is um so, so some of the uh, symptoms are restlessness getting up calling out moving around interrupting people um that can get a child excluded from school uh, impulsive action someone says something and they throw something they're not planning to throw it they just throw it because the impulsiveness takes over it's very hard for them to stop that they're in a processing voice i always think of that as the uh, the early disney film of pinocchio as he was walking around moving from being a puppet to a person they gave him a conscience jiminy cricket and that's the bit that's often uh, missing in a way that internal processing voice so you'll get adhd people will actually start they'll overshare they'll give you too much information they'll say too much you know they're not just going i'm just going to the loo they'll say i'm just going to go to the loo and you get a full description and and it's because that's in their mind and so it comes out and they can't put the brakes on how do we get the diagnosis uh it's a collection of history from the parents uh the school if they're young uh and an interview if, uh, for adults uh, if you have school records that can be helpful but now the the laws change that you don't have to have school records uh so it's an interview and uh, a, you know if you can um a question a questionnaire really and then they they make a kind of decision because it's an art to make the diagnosis it's not a tick box you know, it's not like the COVID where you, you take the test and it, and it comes up with two lines and you go, yes, I've got COVID. It's it's a sort of, uh, you, you move towards an agreement in a sense. And it's a very tricky diagnosis because your GP can't diagnose it, your ed psych can't diagnose it. It's got to be a psychiatrist, but a psychiatrist that's specifically trained to diagnose ADHD and manage the medication or a practitioner nurse that's specifically trained to manage the, uh, to diagnose and manage the medication. It's a quite a high level diagnosis. What symptoms tend to show up? Well, there's uh, the, the three main ones are hyperactivity, uh, impulsiveness. I, I, uh, there's so many, <laughs> but but imp impulsive is, is, is a real major one because that's the, uh, the way I understand it is that there's, there's like a, a mental muscle we have, you know, the neurotypicals are going in and there's something happens over here and we all want to look. Now, if, if you're a neurotypical, you, you can go, oh, I've got to come back here. This is where I'm supposed to be. If you're ADHD, that's really attractive. I'm just going to look at that. Mm. And and if to pull that attention back to the screen takes a lot of muscle power. And after once or twice of doing it, you're exhausted and you haven't got the energy to do that. So you need to take a bit of a break uh, to build your strength up to come back, right? Put fuel in the tank. It's, it's a uh, very persistent as well that it, it, it keeps sticking and it keeps going on. It, it isn't something that can just disappear. How can ADHD be managed? And if medication is one of those things, is there anything about those medications that can impact performance? Um, medic well, the medications is, is an A-class medication. It's, it's a, a serious, the, the doctor can't prescribe it. It's got to be from a psychiatrist that gives a prescription and then your GP can fill the prescription out. So it's an A-class medication that the pharmacy has to get in. It can affect it, like all medications that have side effects. Mm -hmm. Um, but 
there are a lot of myths around the side effects. Like for one thing is it can stunt your growth. But if you look at the research, the research is only carried out with kids up to 16. It doesn't go beyond that. And it measured them and it found that the medication might reduce their height by about half a centimetre. But a lot of people's growth kicks in after 16 and that wasn't pursued. Mm. And I know many people with ADHD that are six foot something high, mm. you know, uh, and it doesn't matter. Uh, one of the other side effects that's quite difficult is it can affect your eating. So, uh, you know, if some medications you don't want to eat while it's in your system. And there's two types of medication. One is in your system 24 hours and you take it for a long time. But the other one, the more usual one that most people have, it's in your system for four hours, six hours, eight hours, 10 hours or 12 hours, depending on the medication you use. Mm. And then it's completely out of your system. Right. Uh, so if you're taking some medication and one of the side effects for you is that you you don't want to eat, uh, what you do is you'll have your breakfast, then you'll take your medication, then you might not eat for six hours. You might just have, uh, you know, water or something. When the medication wears off, uh, then you go and hit the fridge okay. and empty it. So there's workarounds and you can plan with it. Mm. Before we came on, we, we were talking about executive functions and also the emotional impacts of ADHD on somebody. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and explain what that is? Yeah, um, particularly it, the uh, executive functions are in, are in the, the, the frontal lobe, uh, sort of, if, if we just keep that as an image. And that part of the brain is sluggish at developing by about 30%. It catches up by the age of 29 to 30. Uh, but what happens is that you're going through your formative years. You know, you can imagine that if you were a seven-year-old mm. with ADHD and your executive functions are um, sluggish, usually we take three years off their age to give you a, an idea about how they're processing their emotional world, not the intellectual world. So emotionally, they might be like a four-year-old. Mm. You know, the 12 year olds like a nine year old, the 15 year olds like a 12 year old. And what happens is as you get older and more of your brain is developed and the neural networks are set up, you develop strategies to manage things, to cope with things. And so when you're hitting your 20s, you've already got a lot of strategies, but you, you know, your, your brain is catching up as well. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's worth thinking that, you know, the person in front of you might intellectually understand what you want, be capable of, of really creative work, but their emotional understanding and processing can be much younger. Mm. You know, if you talk to the mums, uh, they'll tell you always oh, he or she, uh, they're always younger than their, their peers, they're a little bit younger. Right. What myths do you think need to be busted about ADHD? <laughs> uh, well, everyone. Um, you know, it's number one, it's not deliberate. So if they're forgetting to turn up to your appointments, it's probably not deliberate. If they're coming late, it's probably because the executive functions, something's happening. I often hear, uh, I don't think they've got ADHD. I think they're doing it deliberately, um, which is kind of a little bit crazy, really, because 
the diagnosis is at such a high level. You have to be specifically trained as a psychiatrist or a practitioner nurse to diagnose ADHD. Uh, and then you can, if they choose to go on the medication route, you can, you can prescribe medications. Your GP, your ed psych and other people are not trained to diagnose. So having someone, you know, Joe blogs down the pub saying, I don't think they've got ADHD. It's, it's just deliberate. Uh, is is valueless because they're just dismissing someone that's got a, a massive disability. Mm. So an example might be, as I said, it's 5% of the population are thought to have ADHD, 1% diagnosed. But they've done research in prisons where 60, 70, 80% of the people, when they've diagnosed them, have got ADHD. And they're not in there for planning bank robberies they're in there for very impulsive behavior, driving too fast, alcohol use, drug use, not, uh, you know, something very, very simple. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's quite tragic that it impacts lives hugely. You know, if you are forgetful and you get a parking ticket and you write the checkout to send off the parking ticket and pay your £60 because then, you know, it's fine. But what you do is you put it in your pocket and you forget to post it. So then the parking ticket goes up to £120 or something. And then you have to write another check and you put it and then you get ready to post it. And then that goes up. And, uh, you know, there are many stories of people that have had their car towed away because suddenly the parking ticket they didn't pay has turned out to be thousands of pounds mm. because their executive functions weren't functioning properly. Relating that to the singer and what they might be asked of in that moment, how is this going to impact their working memory, their short-term memory and their long-term memory when we're looking at learning lines and remembering mm. staging and choreography, that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, if you make it, they're visual kinesthetic learners. So if you make it visual for them somehow, um, it's probably going to stick more. So for instance, if you're learning lines, uh, you know, it's you, you can go and look at what people with dyslexia do. They'll walk around the room and they'll touch different things and say a line. So they walk around their living room. And when they come to do the performance, they are then walking around their living room and they're touching the sideboard and they say that line. Then they go to the chair and they say the next line. That can be helpful as strategies. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some people sing it. Uh, they sing the lines to a particular rhythm that helps them. Uh, some people write it down. It's kind of what works for the person in front of you that's important mm. because there's no one size fits all mm. that helps. Yeah. You've worked with quite a few singers. Is there any pattern that you've noticed, whether that's to do with how they, how they process what the material that they're learning or before they go on stage and how to manage nerves, that sort of thing. Is there any anecdotes that you can share with us? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the, the other things to think about is that people with ADHD have a very strong sense of fairness and justice. Um, and so if they're in a, a community and they see that someone's been singled out for preferential treatment, they will know that and there'll be some resentment. If someone is treating them badly, they'll know that. And that, you know, uh, can affect their emotions and the emotions can go a little higher. Uh, one of the things is uh, 
when you become emotionally overloaded, emotionally flooded, if you're angry, upset, uh, in, in a sort of panic attack state, it can really cause a lot of problems. You know, our whole breathing changes. Yeah. It goes from lower abdominal up to the top of the chest, which tightens everything. Uh, so you're not free to to use all the soft tissues to to make the sounds you need to. Um, the significant thing is that if you're in a kind of over, I call it emotionally flooded phase, um, what happens is you, your IQ level drops by about 30 points. Right. So your processing is really severely reduced. And I found out recently that your hearing is affected if you're in an emotionally flooded state. So if you've got four very high, medium and very low sounds that you're processing, when you're in a, a panic attack state, the, the middle two disappear and you've got the very high and the very low. And that's what you're hearing. Well, obviously, that's going to be affecting people quite a lot. So you've got to, if someone's triggered and they're in this over emotional state and they're coming up to it. And remember, it, it might not be a terrible thing that's happening. It might be I'm going on stage to sing. Mm. That can be an overload. So you have to find ways of bringing that down. So one of the best ways is to change their breathing. Mm. Um, there's different techniques for it, but it's it's the short version is if you do a sigh breath, short in, long out, what that does is you do a few of those. That changes your body chemistry so that you, you're not over-oxygenating your blood. Mm. That's As it travels round, it gets read that I'm no longer under attack because the panic attack comes from if you think you're in danger of a life death situation mm. and you, you, your blood is enriched with adrenaline and cortisol and a lot of oxygen and, and you, your and your thinking brain gets switched off and everything's pushed through the amygdalas which are two little glands and they don't think they kind of work on patterns and sometimes the patterns they choose are it's called sloppy pattern matching where it's uh, you know, if, if the door behind you opened and something walked in and it's got four legs, a long curly tail, it's got whiskers and pointy ears, what is it? Hopefully uh, a that's dog a question. or a cat. <laughs> oh, I forgot to say it. It's about five foot at the shoulders. It's orange and black stripes. Oh, right. So a tiger. That first thing was a sloppy pattern match where you were going to something familiar. And that's what we do when we're in. Um, when we're overloaded with something like going on stage to sing. Uh, and you, you'll know this as well if you go on holiday or you're in an interview or something like that, it can trigger you into an almost panic-like state. Mm. And so when you are triggered like that, you also want to go to the toilet more often because if you were being chased through the woods by a pack of uh, dogs, Mm. Uh, you, you would get rid of any excess weight. So if you had shopping bags, you'd dump them and that might distract the dogs. But also you'd want to go to the loo. Your, your, uh, your throat dries up because, uh, and very important for singers, the throat dries up because your body has to hold on to what liquid it can to cool you down if you're running or you're uh, fighting. Mm. So and your body will get rid of excess, you know, so so the bladder will empty, the bowel will empty, the stomach might empty just to get rid of it. And if you think about the last time you went on holiday, you were probably in the loo more often than you would normally go to. Hmm. If you think about going for an audition, 
you're probably in the loo more often before you go on for the audition. So that's the kind of triggers where it can come up. And if you think about that's going to affect my hearing, it's going to affect my throat, it's going to affect my thinking. And they're all key points for any kind of significant moment in your life. Mm. So breathing, learning to do a, breathe, uh, a breath so it, it changes your body chemistry can take you out of that. And it can take quite a while to come out of it. How can we create the best environment when working with a singer with ADHD? How can we plan our lesson and structure it well for them? Well, it's it's just be regular. I mean, don't use too many words. Um, I often say avoid the word don't as well, because uh, the word don't in, in the hypnotherapy world is often used as a, a way of giving a, a hypnotic command. So if you're up a tree and I say don't fall out, we filter the word don't out because we have to think about what falling out looks like. And then we uh, we fall out. <laughs> if you're carrying a tray and someone says don't drop it, you're more likely to drop it because the embedded command take don't out and it's drop the tray. You know, don't run down the corridor becomes run down the corridor. So, you know, think about how when you're talking to somebody and you use the word don't, don't do this, don't stand like that, don't stand like this. You're you're actually you could be giving them embedded commands that are kind of prompting them to do what you don't want them to do. Right. So you can try to change your language, look at your language, you know, use permissive language. I wonder if you were to walk slowly down the corridor, whether that would make a difference. Or um, try. I wonder if you stood in a, in a relaxed way. What about dropping one foot behind the other and seeing what that's like? Mm. Um, so you, you're kind of giving them permission to change, rather than you must do this, which can promote an oppositional reaction as mm. well. What do we need to be mindful of, as well as that, in our lessons when we are working through? specific things do we need to do one thing at a time is it okay to give an instruction that includes different things working in one go well it's uh if you chunk down the information it's quite helpful if you're uh if i was to send you the neurotypical to the shop and say go to the shop and get me eggs milk flour sugar and list off seven items the way i explain it to parents quite often is that i've got a a set of coat pegs here so i give you the seven items and i've got a label and i can put a label on each peg so the neurotypical can go to the shop there's a label on each peg they can get the seven items and come back for the adhd person there might only be three pegs so if i give them an overload and say seven items well three are on the pegs four are on the floor but we don't know what's on the floor they go and they know I've got to get a lot of things. So they get eggs, milk, flour, and then they might see a puppy and think, well, that's pretty. I'll have the puppy. Um, and then they come back with that. Please this punch because they think they've got everything and you're quite shocked. What, why have you got a puppy? Mm. Um, because th they will fill a void. So um, if you um, now on a bad day, there may not be three pegs. If, if, they've, uh, if they've slept badly and, or they've had an argument on the way to your lesson, there might not be three pegs, there might be two pegs. Mm. And then tonight, their, their favourite programmes on TV, which they've got to watch, so they might only have one TV, one peg left. So I would always go with about two things, so talk about two things, 
work through that. When you're getting to that, then introduce another couple of things. Mm. Uh, and what works well for the ADHD person works well for everybody. Mm. It's it, You don't have to do anything special. It's just being really aware and consistent. And it's the old adage that, you know, if you do something and it works, do more of it. If it's not working, stop it. One of the really good things is that ADHD people really respond positively to praise. It doesn't have to be a pony. It can just be a thumbs up, a nod, I like that, something like that. And it reinforces them that they've made a good choice. Um, and, you know, it's it happens every day. You will know people with ADHD that you didn't know have got ADHD. Mm. Um it's quite it's quite amazing how many people are out there you know if you know a stand-up comic you, they've probably got adhd mm. um you know because of the speed and the quickness of what they do uh that they, they have a mind that's more like a hunter rather than a farmer so adhd people tend to be hunters mm. they go out they'll explore things they'll take risks they'll uh, you know, they're the ones that discover new things quite often. You know, the farmers are on their fields and they, they are very good at doing what they do, but they don't find a new patch of mushrooms and try them. And then you deal with the after effects of eating these strange mm. mushrooms, which could be really good or it could send you with, with a few problems. Mm. Some singers who are ADHD might note uh, a, a sense of distraction. Somebody walks by the studio room and, and they're taken with them. How can we make sure that the singer feels as interested, involved and not distracted as much as possible? Well, if you have um, <clears throat> let, let, a school is a good system. If, if with the ADHD child in a, in a classroom, I would not put the ADHD child near the window next to the sink where the paints are or the musical instruments, because that's really interesting or next to an open door where everybody's walking past because their attention is just going to get sucked into this sudden change, this, this excitement for them. It's, it's novelty. They're novelty seekers. So if you kind of keep it, um, you know, the doors closed, the sound down, uh, you know, you might even not turn the lights down a lot, but just dim them a little bit because uh, people with ADHD, they're very sensitive to many things. Um, and just be aware that, you know, it, the lights might be uncomfortable for them. Uh, sometimes it's the textures and the feelings that are around might trigger some kind of reaction. Um, and, and it's just being able to read the person in front of you. If it's their passion, they'll be able to focus forever and they won't know how long they've been focused for. If it's something they're a bit bored with, if they focus for 30 seconds, it's, it could feel like three hours, Right. Uh, you know, because that's not what. Uh, and, and they're also um, it's not it's a really bad name. It's not a deficit of attention. It's too much. For them, life's like driving down a motorway with six lanes that's rammed full of cars, all doing 70 miles an hour. Mm. Most people will be concentrating on their car, trying to keep safe and everything else. The ADHD person knows what everybody else is doing around them. Mm. They're not quite sure what they're doing, but they know what everybody else is around. And, and they can keep track of everything that's happening. So if I go into a school to observe, say, a child with ADHD, um, I'll often 
go up to them and say, well, what's happening? And they'll tell me, oh, Billy's just done this and Mary's done that. And they've been spoken to four times and sent out, whereas this person's done something 10 times and nothing's happened. They have the whole thing in their mind because there's just an overload of attention. Mm. Um, and that's that's that you want them to be able to come in and focus on their passion. So it's got to be the passion that's a driver. And if you reward them as close as possible, so if they do something that you really like that is helping, reward them with a descriptive praise. You know, it's no good saying, oh, that's good or that's nice, because we don't know what good means or nice means because everybody's different. So you've got to say, well, you did that, whatever it was, really well. Or I like the sound of, that you're making. It's quite a beautiful sound that's coming out so that you anchor what they're doing with the event as close as possible because there's more chance of it sticking if you were to meet them a week later and said that was a really nice piece of work you did there when you sang this so and so and so and so they may not connect with what you're talking about because Mm. that much time's gone on Mm. just to refer back to distraction a lot of us work online with singers where they're in their own house they've got their if they're young children, toys around or something that might be a little bit more interesting than <laughs> than what we're doing on online in the lesson. How can we make sure that we are involving them in our in our session when we're online, when they're so surrounded by other things that are theirs? It's very, very difficult. It's it, it, because uh, ADHD people uh, can get easily addicted to anything. Mm. So the screen time and things like that is addicted. I mean, I was working with one young boy um, and he's 10. And I was I had a chat to his mum later and I was saying, oh, this online. And I was saying, oh, I noticed that this, this and this. And I said, and, and the screen kept changing because I could see his face was lighting up with different things. Mm. And then the next week when I chatted to her, she said, oh, I found out what it was. He was checking the football scores all the time during your meeting. Mm. So he was kind of going off, looking at the football scores because he wanted to know how his football team was going. And so he was totally distracted, but answering me at the same time because he, he could keep both things going. Mm. Mm. So it's um, reduce the outside world for them. You know, they need a quiet place. They need a place that's and not a marketplace. You know, if they can, if there's a window nearby, they might want to just close the curtains, something like that. So you you reduce the distractions. Mm. Uh, they will hear all the sounds. I know p- people with ADHD that are complaining about a dog barking, and um, the mum of this particular young man uh, couldn't understand because she couldn't hear it. She opened the window and she couldn't hear it, and he says, "Yes, it's four doors down. Can't you hear it?" And she could hear a tiny, tiny thing. But for him, he was in a room with the windows closed about four doors away. And the noise of the dog was making him crazy, which is driving mm-hmm. him. Because that sound was triggering for him. Mm. You know, the, the motorbike that was outside or the pneumatic drill might not affect him. Often we want to send singers away with an exercise to practice, like a technical element that we're working on, which we then implement into a song or we want them to learn a specific new piece of repertoire. So how can we send them away with that practice in a way that's going to be useful for them? Uh, also that inspires them to do it and stick to a, almost a daily routine, if you like. 
Well, you know, we have videos now, which are quite useful. And so a video is, is quite a powerful tool to do it. I mean, it's it's no good just writing a whole list of instructions because that might not mean anything. But if you can include some pictures or diagrams or just basic drawings um, where you want them to do various things, that can be helpful. Um, and as long as you break it down into little tiny chunks of information, I mean, it's like make a cup of tea. You go and you, you go through a massive amount of things to make a cup of tea. You're using different elements of your executive functions. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you say go to the kitchen, boil the water, and you might have to break it down that way, you know, by doing a little a picture of the kettle or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that takes a long time, but it's 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 just tuning into the person in front of you. What do they need? Could you do a quick video that you send to them that they then do that? Or could it be a series of photographs that you can take and send to them? Um, can they make a note of what it looks like? Mm. If they're involved in making the note, then you're investing something in remembering. So you, you, you might send a follow-up email just a reminder uh, what you're working on this week is A, B, and C, <clears throat> and um, just as a, as a trigger, just to sort of get them to remember a bit. Mm. Is there a length of lesson that is ideal? If if they're doing something that they're really passionate about, they can concentrate a long time. But um, it, it, there's a man called Dr. Russell Barkley who uh, has a very good <clears> – <throat> um, it would be worth going and seeing on YouTube – uh, and if you search for something called "This is how we treat ADHD off science" or "Dablef," you're looking for something that's about 30 minutes, and it talks about how children learn, and it, he gives a really good set of background information. He's actually talking to a room full of psychiatrists. He he talks about the fact that, say, the neurotypical person has a tank of petrol that can do 120 miles. Uh, the ADHD person's tank is very small and it might only be able to do like 15 minutes rather than concentrating for three or four hours. So if you break your lessons down and you do, especially if it's very tricky, highly focused stuff, if you do it like say 10, 15 minutes and then do, you know, these kind of make bad noises or jump up and down. So you get put a movement break in a behavior break. Uh, just so 15 minutes, then a two or three minutes bit of silliness, and then you can come back. What that does is it kind of puts fuel in that little tank mm. and then they can focus for the next 10, 15 minutes. So <clears throat> 10, 15 minutes might be a good place to start. Mm. Then you'll get to know, well, this person can do it for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, or they can do 40 minutes before they need a movement break or a little uh change up of something just a distraction sure if we have a singer who hasn't had a diagnosis and you mentioned the statistics of people who have been diagnosed with it compared to who haven't but that specific singer feels like they have the symptoms and they're Hmm. currently wait on the waiting list for for an assessment how can we best help them do we go down the road of assumption or do yeah. we carry on as if we wait for the diagnosis? Uh, you know, I, I, if you assume that they've got ADHD and treat them as if they have and use the techniques that have tended to work for pe- people with ADHD that you've worked before, it'll do nothing but help them. 
Whereas if you treat someone with ADHD as if they're neurotypical, that can disrupt their learning and get in the way of their emotional world. Because one of the most staggering figures I came across was that an ADHD person by the age they're 12 will have had 20,000 more negative put downs than a neurotypical child of 12. And if that starts at, say, five, that the, the negative put downs start to 12, you're looking at seven years with 20,000. That's kind of almost 2,800 a year. I mean, that's, I don't know, 40, 30 or 40 a day. I'm not sure what the maths is, but mm. it's a massive amount of negative put downs. Mm. Um, and it, it, if you can do find a way of combating that so that they're actually getting rewards, it, it'll it'll lift things a bit. Mm. it's a massive figure yeah it is switching roles for a second with the voice teacher Mm -hmm. if a voice teacher is adhd Mm -hmm. how can they best show up in the lesson but in a way that is helpful for them um i i would think that if a voice teacher's got adhd they're they're actually doing their passion Uh, it's it's an interest. It's something that they really want to f- focus on, and, and so that the, for them, they're going to be able to concentrate and be more present. Uh, also, there is this kind of kinship where they understand the challenges from the inside. Mm. They know it's not theirs; isn't the same as the person they're with, but they, there is this respect, this understanding. I think that that can help. There are some where it goes the opposite way and they kind of almost punish other people. Mm. But uh, generally, I think it, it, it can be helpful because they understand from inside and they will have techniques and tricks that work for them that they can drip feed in. And if you have a singing teacher that's ADHD, it, it's worthwhile talking to them because what would they suggest? how they found things work because Mm. they are the expert in a way you know with with an adhd person you're going to get very exciting things happen you're going to get the unusual um it's it's going to be hard work but not necessarily predictable Mm. they can be the most loving people in the world but they can also you know um spark off and go get angry quite suddenly and then calm down because they're processing their emotional world at a, at a sort of different rate. So it's being predictable, being careful, considerate is, is a really good way of doing things with them. And if someone is triggered, you do need to step back. I talked about when you're emotionally triggered, your, your IQ's down, your hearing's down, and your speech is down. But that can take, for that release of the chemicals of adrenaline and cortisol, coursing through their bodies can take two to four hours to clear the system. Mm. So you might need to build in some kind of stepping away from the event somehow to give them a chance to process, do something fun uh, as a way of helping clear the system of the fear chemicals that are, you know, the survival things that have kicked in mm. so that the, they've got an ability to possibly be more available to do what the lesson is about. What resources would you suggest for us to check out on this topic? You mentioned the YouTube video there, and we will put that in the show notes for people to to go and watch. There's an interesting uh, thing that just happened just recently. There's a a character who was in The Only Way is Essex that that 
with his girlfriend, they started to make a different program called Baby Steps. He's, it's, he's called Tommy Mallets. And he's, he's, he's actually set up a business of, um, designing and selling trainers. And he's very, very successful at it. But, um, if you look at episode, uh, series three, episode one, uh, him and his girlfriend have just had a baby uh, and it's a re it's a documentary and they're interviewed and they're followed around with cameras and he's they were having difficulties and she'd said to him you've got adhd you need to get diagnosed and you need to take medication because you're not the person i love so he and he's he's a really honorable man and he sort of went and he got diagnosed uh realized he's got adhd took his medication and he's then improving his relationship with his girlfriend and their young son mm. um and it, it's quite moving because he describes in the i've only seen a couple of episodes but he describes how it is for him how when he started to take medication he said to some of his friends i'm not hearing music in my head anymore mm. they looked at him like he was crazy and this what well i can't hear music in my head anymore it stopped. And don't you hear music? And they're saying, no, we never hear music. And he said, well, what about, I mean, I used to have about six voices in my head all the time on the go conversations and they've stopped. I've just got one conversation now. Is that, and they were saying, well, that's how it is for us. So he was going through life with half a dozen conversations and music playing while he's just getting through the day. Mm. Now it's no surprise. He, he was, uh, failing at school he couldn't read or write um he set up this business where he, he was having to communicate with ceos and things like that he's now a multi-millionaire but he can't write emails he was to struggle for four or five hours to write a one-line email mm. and his proudest thing that he said um there's about two or three weeks into taking the medication was for the first time he read a book to his son who's you know a little toddler and that was the first book he'd read wow and he can write emails now. And the medication's just slowed him down. It's let him be more present in the world rather than, you know, living in the fast lane. Mm, mm. So, you know, uh, Tommy Mallet, it Baby Steps, Series 3, Episode mm. 1. They came to Addis and they, they met with us for um, a few hours so we could explain what it was to him. And then they went off and did their thing. Oh, great, great. Well, Colin McGee, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Where can people find out more about you and the Addis charity? Uh, well, Addis is a the national registered ADHD charity. It's, it's in London. Uh, if you look at addis.co.uk, you can go to the website. Um, it's a very small charity and um, I work there, volunteer there, work there. And I've got a, a private practice, small private practice, because this is supposed to be retirement. <laughs> but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. You, do you feel attached to it? Well, it's it's something that I've always been interested in. And, you know, I've been doing this for a long, long time. Mm. Uh, and when you make a difference in someone's life, uh, you know, I remember one young lady I worked with was running had problems with her voice. And she had a lot of breaks in the voice. So we worked and I, I don't know anything about music, mm. but we worked with the emotional world. And then suddenly she found she was able to sing Queen of Queen of the Night, mm. which I think has got a massive range. And she was singing it outside in the open, mm. not in a, a, a theater where it's mm. protected. 
uh, you know, and she was just over the moon. She says, I've got my voice back. I've got all those breaks. We've built bridges and I can go through them and it's fantastic. And that's the kind of thing that you get that feedback and you go, oh, that's fantastic. Well, Colin, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Alexa. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.